0: Welcome to the Prask Hour Brief, hot topics in labor and employment law. I'm Howard Robbins, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Dan Ornstein, an uh, employment colleague in our London office, and we're going to discuss how to help demystify UK employment laws for US businesses. Dan, thanks so much for being here. I know you're across the pond. Howard, always great to speak to you. As if dealing with U.S. employment laws weren't difficult enough, international businesses also have to face up to challenges of local requirements. So Dan, is U.K. employment law radically different from U.S. laws? I think the good
1: news is that it's not radically different. Rather, a lot of U.K. employment law contains concepts and frameworks that at least are going to be familiar to U.S. lawyers and HR professionals.
0: All right, well, that sounds promising so far. Can you give us a couple of examples of of what we'd find comfortably similar?
1: Sure. So take UK laws on discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. These have got a lot in common with their US counterparts. In fact, UK law was heavily influenced by the Civil Rights Act. So much so, in fact, that when I do diversity and inclusion training, the US training is often very similar to the UK training.
0: So Dan, what's something that is different?
1: Well, here I think a good example is that it's mandatory for every employee to have a written contract of employment that sets out with real nitty-gritty the terms of employment.
0: And that's obviously very different from what we see in the United States where really it's only high-level executives typically who have an employment contract. Absolutely. Let's turn back to discrimination law. Tell me more about the similarities and differences that you see in that area.
1: Let me start with what I think are some notable differences from my experience. For example, age discrimination can be based on somebody being older or younger. And another difference is that every employee, even if they're supervisors or not, can be liable for discrimination. As to some similarities, well, like in the US, the legislation starts with a set of protected characteristics that will be very familiar to businesses in the US. For example, color, race, nationality, Gender, gender reassignment, religion or belief, sexual orientation, disability and age. And on top of this, the structure and basic rights are very similar in the UK and the US. So the key concepts in the UK are direct and indirect discrimination, which are analogous to disparate treatment and disparate impact. And likewise, there's a concept of harassment, as well as victimization, which is almost identical to retaliation.
0: So other than these protected characteristics, can employers in the UK do whatever they want with respect to their employees or are there other protections?
1: One other difference, and this is something that may surprise US businesses, is that in addition to protection based on personal attributes, individuals can have protection by reason of their working status. For example, by being a fixed-term or a part-time worker. Uh, and that's
0: certainly going to be very different from the experience that US employers have, because that's a pretty common distinction here. Let's turn to something a little different. Let's talk about labor unions and collective bargaining. What kind of differences would a US-based employers see uh, when they're doing business in the UK?
1: I think the first point is similar to the US, trade union membership has dwindled significantly, especially in the private sector. And with that, so too is the influence of trade unions in the workplace. I would note that in the last couple of years, and I think this is the same as in the US, there's been a slight increase in trade union membership from an all-time low in the UK that was in 2016. So as to the rights of trade unions, I think these would be familiar to US businesses. They include the rights to take industrial action and the right to collectively bargain. One thing I note as well is there's been considerable talk about cooperation between unions from different jurisdictions. And while we've seen a little bit of that, in practice, I think the talk has just been just talk, and we've not seen too much international cooperation.
0: So for an employer who is trying to do a corporate deal that involves business operations in the US and the UK, or trying to reduce its workforce in the course of reorganization, what kind of consultation requirements are there? Are they different in the UK, Dan?
1: That's a great question, Hal, because even where there's not a trade union, and in particular in a transactional context, there can be freestanding collective consultation obligations. So the UK has a concept of collective consultation where in specific circumstances, management on the one hand and employee representatives on the other must have what we call meaningful discussions with a view to entering into agreement about proposals made by management. Now, This doesn't actually require the management to do what the employee representatives want. It's just a requirement to have good faith discussions and union doesn't have a right to veto. But again, where there's a lack of agreement, you could see that it causes industrial relations issues. The most common situations where it's required are one under legislation known as the transfer of undertaking protection of employment regulations, which everybody calls 2 This is complex legislation. provides for the automatic transfer of employment in the context of the transfer of a business. Here, in advance of a business transfer, a recognised trade union, if there is one, or an employee representative must be informed and in some cases consulted about any changes that are going to be made in connection with that transfer. Now there's no fixed timetable for this process, so rather there needs to be a judgement of making sure you consult or provide the information in good time. The second area where this arises is where there's a reduction of force for 20 or more employees within a 90-day period. So here we call those collective redundancies. And where there's collective redundancies, there's got to be consultation, a minimum of 30 days before the first termination. Or where 100 or more people are being terminated, it's got to be 45 days in advance of that first termination.
0: So Dan, I'll say that when I hear that, I think to myself as a a US lawyer that regardless of whether it's a consultation or an agreement that's required, it, it sure sounds like a lot of hurdles to go over when there's a corporate deal going on or some kind of restructuring.
1: You're right. The consultation requirements must be built into any transaction timetable. You don't want your clients having a surprise delay to an acquisition.
0: Let's suppose that I get it wrong, that I rushed through it or didn't have the right timing. What are the consequences?
1: There can be severe financial consequences. Up to 90 days pay per effective employee for collective redundancy, and up to 13 weeks pay per employee in the Tupi case. And what's really important is that this liability is viewed as penal. So if you get it wrong, especially if you deliberately flout the legislation, there can be a really significant liability.
0: Uh, Any other unpleasant surprises, Dan, whether it's about terminations or other things you want to let our folks know about?
1: You know, I think termination is a really significant difference. So for example, in the US, we often have employees employed at will. In the UK, every employee has a notice period, a minimum period of time of notice required to dismiss somebody. Now that period will depend. It will be the greater of the contractual period or one week completed year of service up to a maximum of 12 weeks, and that ties very much in to termination costs. In fact, for senior executives, which is not dissimilar to the US, we will often see a six month or even 12 month notice period. And another important factor is though, if you dismiss somebody without giving them the notice, it doesn't make the termination ineffective. Rather, it just triggers a liability to pay them the compensation that they would have otherwise received during their notice period.
0: So Dan, if someone just has to go, if an employer feels like it has to get rid of somebody, they're not actually stopped from doing that, but there's a cost to it.
1: You're absolutely right. I'd say on terminations, Howard, I characterize the UK as a pay or comply
0: culture. You can
1: do it, but it has a cost. As if the notice periods weren't enough, employees also enjoy something called unfair dismissal rights. And these are creatures of statute that render a dismissal unfair and entitle an employee to extra compensation if the dismissal isn't for a required reason or not carried out in accordance with a fair procedure. As to that compensation, the good news for employers is that compensation is capped at around £95,000, subject to certain exceptions, for example, discrimination or whistleblowing. So even then, in returning to the concept of a pay or comply culture, you can usually assess the cost of terminating someone by reference to unfair dismissal rights and their notice period.
0: And Dan, this all happens in some kind of specialized court you've got in the UK?
1: That's right. All statutory employment claims are heard by employment tribunals, which are specialist
0: employment courts. How long a wait is it for that process to play out, this terminable, years-long thing? From beginning to end, rule of thumb, about a year. But again, it's not going to be that somebody gets reinstated, it's just a question of the price.
1: That's exactly right. A dismissal is effective, even if it's unlawful.
0: So before you and I make a hard exit from this podcast, let me ask you the question that everybody's been waiting for, I think, which is, is this all going to change with Brexit?
1: Well, the sensible answer for me to give would be to say that the uncertainty makes it impossible to say, but... You know what, Howard, for you, I'm going to stick my neck on the line and give you my personal view, which is I don't think Brexit is going to make much change to UK employment law, not in the short term, the medium term or the long term.
0: So I thought that in addition to concerns about cheese, that one of the main motivations for Brexit was getting out from under the influence of European laws and in particular employment laws.
1: You're absolutely right, Howard, but really it's... One of those issues that when you look at the detail, you can't really see what changes are going to be made to employment laws. You know, there's a lot of talk about taking back control, but our employment laws are very UK specific. Let me give you an example. The law on termination that we discussed is really UK specific. And similarly, while discrimination law takes a lot from Europe, in fact, the European law borrowed heavily from the UK law. And I just can't see any political party, wherever they're from, deciding we're out of Europe, we can all discriminate freely.
0: So do you see Brexit bringing any change to the employment and labor landscape?
1: It would be brazen for me to say that there won't be any changes, but I can't see that they will be radical.
0: I think one
1: potential change we may see will be in relation to the protections to part-time or fixed-term workers or agency workers or other workers in the gig economy. A lot of that legislation comes from Europe. And I think a flexibility to rethink these protections may be something that comes under scrutiny and could be to the advantage of the UK, especially given the proliferation of the on-demand economy and the challenges it creates.
0: Well, thanks, Dan. I know that comparisons between the US and the UK will certainly make people think of George Bernard Shaw's line that we are two nations divided by a common language. While there are some common concepts, there are certainly some important divisions as to how these apply in practice, which uh, obviously create traps for the unwary. Thank you for joining us on the Prask Hour Brief today. Stay tuned for more insights on the latest hot topics in labor and employment law. And you can check out our ILG blog through our website for updates on international employment law. And be sure to follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play.